The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit cracking your pretzels and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 453 with guest Peter Vogel, recorded live Tuesday, June 2nd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, I got your Project Natal controller right here, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're at Richard's house in Vancouver, British Columbia, actually, uh, uh, just got here and um, I looked around at his new house and whoa! Thank you, sir. Whoa! We've uh, worked pretty hard on it. It's far from done, as you can see. There's little lots to ha- be done, but uh, but I, now I can see why you keep talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's taking shape. How's that? It's pretty awesome. That's and uh, of course, he's got a slab of ribs on the uh, on the Barbie. We're gonna have a good time tonight, but that's not why we're here. No, it's because it's Dev Teach. That's why everybody's in Vancouver. Yeah, so we're here for Dev Teach. We, we're gonna just do a short intro today, but I thought we'd say hello from uh, from Vancouver. And uh, we haven't done anything at Dev Teach yet, so by Thursday we'll have more to report about Absolutely, the show. By Thursday we'll have done our Wednesday night uh, .NET Rocks Live, so that's it should right. be should be interesting. It should be a lot of fun. Now let's uh, now let's roll the tape of the previously recorded interview. Our guest today is Peter Vogel. Peter is a principal in PH&V Information Services. PH&V specializes in the development of N-tier applications using .NET applications. PH&V's clients include Volvo, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, and Microsoft. He also writes the Practical ASP.NET column for Visual Studio Magazine, along with feature articles on emerging .NET technologies. Peter's most recent book, Practical Code Generation in .NET from Addison Wesley is aimed at providing developers with the tools to incorporate code generation into their development toolkit. In addition to teaching for Learning Tree International, Peter wrote their ASP.NET and technical writing courses. He's written articles for every major magazine devoted to development with Microsoft tools. Peter is also presented at conferences around the world. You can reach him at peter.vogel, V-O-G-E-L, 
at phvis.com. Welcome, Peter. Oh, thanks. I feel just like um, um, Steve Martin out uh, promoting his new banjo album. <laughs> so you guys go back a long way, you and Richard. Yeah, the, the first conference I ever got to present at, and the only reason I got to present at is about a week before it was to go out, a big concert was, conference was supposed to go out, um, one of the speakers dropped out and recommended me, and it was just up the road from where I live. It was in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, Richard is also a Canadian. and uh, uh, so You're Canadian? I, yeah, who knew? I'm a Canadian. All no, no, really Richard? <laughs> Richard's Canadian? All oh, my time. God. I thought you knew. Nobody told. I didn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I should tell you, Richard, you are in fact, I believe, married to another Canadian. Uh, yes, she was born in the U.S., but she is a Canadian. Yes. Oh. So you know, the the secrets are coming out. I'm afraid, Peter. You're rocking my world. Anyways, the uh, 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 we both ended up at this conference in in Toronto, and that's where I uh, met mention, uh, met Richard. And I'm not ashamed to say that he mentored me. Oh, that's sweet. That was Val Madison's show, wasn't it? That was the one at the Prince Hotel, and uh, uh, we did once one day at the Royal Ontario Science Center, and the other day back at the conference back at the hotel. Right, Richard right. is a mentoring kind of guy; he really is. But that, yeah, that was like 1995. That's a long time ago. You have to remember that in Canada, if it's consenting adults and done in private, practically anything is okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So, so. code generation. This is yeah. um, not not a new topic, and and in fact, um, code generation seems to have taken off uh, quite a lot recently. And people are using code generation. People are using ORMs and a lot of tools to help them be more productive. The you know, I guess um, I'm just going to throw that out there. You know, what is what has been your experiences with this? Well, you know, the whole .NET framework is is absolutely dependent on code generation. Be just any number of things that we do, wherever you go into a designer, you know, all like dragging controls onto a onto an ASP.NET page or Windows form page or dragging uh, setting tables and stuff up in the entity framework. Almost any time you're working with the designer behind the scenes, mm. uh, Visual Studio and, and .NET are conspiring together to uh, generate code for you. Uh, anytime you do declarative coding, you know, uh, like putting in attributes, yeah. Uh, behind the scenes, somebody is either uh, interpreting and writing a general purpose program. That was a bad old way of doing things with general purpose programs, which are evil, or more likely, for instance, with attributes. I bet you if you looked at the compiler, uh, when it sees an attribute, it actually generates the code that that attribute represents. So it, .NET couldn't exist and certainly couldn't run as fast as it does without uh, code generation. But the problem is developers don't use it. It's you know it's something that you know some I don't think developers use it enough at any rate. It's something somebody else does. You know it's not. Um, and, and and you know the, the neat thing I know I'm going on, but you know the neat thing about .NET is everything you can do in .NET you generally speak doing uh, do through using some .NET object. Mm. Well, same with code generation. All the things that Microsoft and Visual Studio and .NET and all those various components entities are using to generate code are built into the .NET framework and built into Visual Studio and just lying around waiting for you to use them, and, and developers aren't. I guess the key to code generation and doing it effectively is, first of all, it, it's always been a rule of mine to never use a code generator to generate code that you don't understand. In other words, what, what the thing is generating, you need to know how to do. You at least need to know what it's doing. 
Otherwise, you know, you get surprised. You you have a bug or something, and now you're looking through hordes of code that you don't understand the flow of and all that kind of stuff. So some of the most successful code generators have been those that use templates that you can, you know, create yourself so that, you, you know, you are um, a part of the process of what gets generated. Well, I think you guys had Kathleen Dollard on sometime in the past, didn't you? She wrote a book on code generation for .NET, yeah. and, and she had five or six rules for uh, code generation, and that was like number one or number two, and I think that's really true. Yeah. Now, and she really takes that template to, uh, uh, to perfection. She uses uh, XML and XSLT, which, and the, the T in XSLT, of course, stands for templates, to generate all of the code, and she has this whole. She's built this well. To get her book, she's got this well-developed framework for uh, executing those templates and code. It's the thing I don't like about it. But a, it's just XSLT, and of course, all sorts of people can't program XSLT. Though, for anyone looking for an XSLT consultant, I can. Um, but that the uh, and then the other thing is, it happens outside of Visual Studio, and, and I think one of the reasons that code generation has been successful in uh, uh, making .NET possible is that it's fully integrated with Visual Studio. But we don't have access to those templates. We don't have access to... We can certainly look at the code, especially in, uh, in Visual Studio 2005 and 2008, if you're debugging. You frequently find yourself dropped into this code you've never seen before in your life with this naming right. convention you don't use. And that's all being written by the great minds at, uh, at Microsoft. So yeah, I think yeah. I think if you're going to write it for yourself, you can write it for your organization. Then you do need to use sort of uh, some sort of template, the two, the some sort of template-based process so that you can manage it. So and, and you know the other thing, seventy-five percent of our time is spent enhancing existing applications. So you got to assume that any code generation solution you build, you're going to spend seventy-five percent of the of the time you ever spend on it is going to be making it better or adapting it to changes in the world or fixing bugs or whatever. Yeah. So. The um, the other option, and maybe you can use both of them together, is the sort of the the ORM thing, where you you know the Entity Framework or or you know any of these other ORMs, or where you can you know in Hibernate, where, where the sort of the code gets generated on the fly based on what you you know what what exactly you're trying to do. It's a little bit different. It is, but I mean fundamentally, what you do if you look at those designers. What happens is, you know, I'll, I'll use Entity Framework because everybody can start up Visual Studio 2008 and play with that. Um, uh, you end up with some tables and stuff sitting on your uh, on on, a, on your design surface, and then you can go and look at the source. You can see that what happens is you're moving these things around graphically. It's generating XML tags because that's what everybody does is XML tags. But then the code generation process kicks in and reads those XML tags and generates real .NET code in one of the two official languages, C Sharp or uh, Visual Basic. The Canadians understand two official languages, and uh, uh, that lang- those XML tags that are being generated from the designer are really a, a kind of declarative programming language. That I mean, that leads us inevitably to saying, "Oh yes, we have a domain-specific language," um, and developers can do that too. I mean, there's nothing stopping you from using existing code generation solutions like Entity Framework, like Hibernate. Or whatever, and then turning right around and saying, "Well, you know what? I want to generate code. There's a whole bunch of code that I write over and over again, and I'm sick and tired of writing it over and over again. It's a waste of my time. The next time I do it, the only enhancement I can make to it is I can screw it up. 
right? I can get yeah. it wrong because it's already perfect. So what you want is some way that you can put in a specification, and you'll probably do it in XML, but you don't have to. Put in a specification and let Visual Studio and some other stuff I've written write out all the dull, boring, repetitious, I'll only get it wrong, .NET code for you in the language of your choice. Do you um, use code generation in concert with other tools such as uh, Entity Framework or maybe CSLA.NET Frameworks and... I mean, you're adding complexity as you as you add more tools in in the mix. But I imagine you know you can end up with a really powerful solution where you know you focus on UI and business objects for the most part. Sure. I, let me give you my my favorite example because it's so simple. And it's something that everybody goes, "Oh, that would be nice." Let, let's say you put your connection strings in your in your config file, either app.config or web.config. So there's I'm picking tools that we all know, right? Any .NET application has an app.config or web.config file, and you put your configuration in the web in there. You put your connection strings for your database. Well, if you go to retrieve them, you have some whacking long namespace you use, and you get down to configuration manager, and then you correctly type in the name of your connection string. Uh, you guys haven't seen me type, but the odds of me correctly typing in the connection string, vanishingly small. I screw it up all the time. And you don't find out to execute that line of code because it is a string. So I've got a little code generation tool, the first one I wrote, simplest one I ever wrote, and every time I save the web.config file, it looks in the web.config file and it sees if I have any connection strings and it generates a class. That class has a static method for every connection string, sorry, static property for every connection string, and that property has the same name as the connection string. So every time I close my web.config file, I get regenerated a, uh, a new class called Configuration Manager. I hit the period. I get an IntelliSense drop-down list of all of the names of all of my connection strings. I pick the one I want. Even I cannot screw this up any longer. <laughs> and, and, and if I type in a connection string that doesn't exist, I get warned at design time, right, with a little you know, red wavy line. I can't... Uh, uh, which I don't get if I just pass the name. So you're, and then, and then from there you can go on. I mean, and, and that's easy enough to get it. It's something every developer could use, something you could build in a morning. Isn't that more of a designer rather than really a co-gen tool? Designers are co-generated. I guess that's true. Yeah. The, the, the end result is a little generated strip of code. In this case, it's a string, but it, it feels like a designer to me. Well, I mean, it, yeah, if you want to, if you want to say web.config, your web.config file, your config file is your designer. Yeah, it is. But well, in this case, I bypassed the designer because I'm actually putting in the XML tags myself. Right. Which is the, the connection strings, which you have to do anyway. Um, but I mean, that's the case I want to make for code generation is that, you know, that's a simple little point solution. And, and it, it's, it's like a drug because once you start doing it, you go, well, what else could I get this thing to generate for me? And from there on, you just start building until you're, you're generating, you know, things that complement uh, entity framework. You have uh, a designer that generates your user interface objects for you or your workflow objects for you. I mean, it, 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 the first one's free, and for me, that was the one that was free. What are some of the, what are some of the dark, dark downsides of code generation? Obviously, it, you know, it can't be, uh, you, you obviously have to walk a line between control and usability and, and productivity and control. But what's, uh, what's the pitfall? Well, I think the major pitfall that I've ever faced is that you pick the wrong uh, project to use code generation for. Uh, fundamentally, code generation, uh, is, it's a niche solution. I mean, it's a big niche, but it's a niche solution. 
And it's those situations where all the parameters are known at design time. And so now you just got to flesh it out with the necessary code. And, and you know, uh, you don't want to do, at least I don't want to do code generation at runtime. I want to supply all the necessary information, and then it generates the, uh, the code for you. Then you run into the problems, like you say, co- complexity and productivity. Um, and that is that uh, a lot of the tools for generating code in the .NET environment can result in you writing very complicated code in the sense that this is code you do not want to have to maintain. Yeah. You do not want to. Like if you're using, if you, a lot of people go into code generation and go, oh, well, Microsoft's got this tool called Code DOM, and that's the code generation tool, and it's not. Code DOM is the tool you need if you want to uh, generate language-neutral code that you say, okay, well, at runtime we'll decide, or we'll decide later on if we're going to generate C-sharp or VB or J-sharp or whatever. And so they get involved in code DOM, and, and there's like an eight-to-one ratio. If you want to generate uh, ten lines of your own code, you're going to have to write a uh, hundred lines of code DOM code. And, and you can imagine trying to maintain a hundred lines of code. So now you've got to think about the things that we always think about, which is good uh, program design, good uh, architecture, so that um, as you are... Uh, building your code generation uh, solution, you're building something that you can, in fact, maintain and enhance and adapt as the world around you. What about database design? If you're, if can you design your database in such a, a strange way that it will throw off code generators? Oh wow, funny you should ask. Uh, we got, I've got a client right now. And we're building this the system for the client, and the idea is that as data is flowing into the system. We're going to have this monitor that watches the data going past and looks for particular conditions. And when these conditions happen, uh, go out and perform some activity, like, for instance, notifying uh, the system manager that this condition has occurred. We want it to be completely user configurable. We want the user to set up what conditions to look for. We want the user to be able to pick from a menu of actions or send us a DLL with their own code in it to be activated when these conditions are met and all that stuff. Now, in the bad old days, what we would have done was we would have had the user enter, okay, check this field, compare it to this field, and by the way, or this value, and by the way, this is a numeric comparison. And in my code, I would have had a whacking big select statement that says, okay, if it's this field, if it's if it's string, do these type conversions. If it's a numeric value, do these type conversions. If it's a greater than operator, do this. If it's an equal to operator, do that. If it's blah, blah, blah. We don't do that. Instead, what happens when the user saves their changes, we look at the set of tests, and we generate a class with one method for every rule that they've put in the table. And we say, oh, okay, this is uh, this field, so we generate code that uses that field. We say it's this operator, so we put the equivalent operator in that programming language into the code. And we they say, okay, it's this data type, so we write all the, the variables out. We declare them with that data type and, and everything. So instead of ending up with this whacking big select statement checking to see what operator you picked, we end up with typically like a method with two lines of code in it that are the representation in the language of our choice of what the user entered in the database. So there's just one example where the user puts in stuff, and based on what the user typed in, we generate uh, uh, the code to support that activity. 
Now, you also, I mean, putting my agile hat on here, you have to take into consideration that your relationships in your databases uh, and your tables and all of that might not be as granular as you want your classes to be. You may uh, you, you may end up with classes that have too much in them, um, you know, procs that are attached to entities and things like that. So, so you end up refactoring. And do you refactor your code generation templates or do you refactor after generating the code? And what if you need to do that to some entities but not others? Well, again, um, and uh, I think Kathleen Dollar brings this out in, in her book. I certainly bring it out in mine, is that uh, sometimes you want to provide the option for the user to step in or the developer to step in and add customizations to the generated code. And, and you know, we, this happens all the time in the, in the .NET framework. If you're working with, I'll pick ASP.NET pages because that's what yeah. I use most, um, you can override methods or you can insert code into event, events. And effectively what you're doing is you're customizing the processing that the underlying page object will normally go through. So you can build that into your code generation. You can say... Uh, all right, I'm going to generate this code, but at these points, my code is going to call out to uh, some other uh, uh, event, some other uh, method, some other, or we, or, or, or alternatively, the developer can take my generated code and override. Uh, I'll allow them to override some methods, or just inherit from my object and build on top of it. The thing you want to avoid in most situations is you don't want to generate the code and then say, okay, now the developer is typically or even often going to have to go in and rewrite that code. Because right. I mean, that defeats the, the point of code generation. You'd be better off just exactly. you know, let the developer write their own code. But you do want to provide, and what I normally, when I'm generating code, I will generate a, a file of generated code in one partial class, and I'll generate another file with another partial class in it that's all the customization stuff so the developer can go in if they need to. And the connection manager I talked about earlier does that because sometimes you need to fiddle with the connection string. Sometimes the connection string has parameters and stuff in it that you want to substitute in at runtime so that the, connection, the second version of my connection manager generate a customization file and there was a method that was called before the connection string that was returned where the developer could put their own code to you know, substitute in parameters or just fiddle with the fondle, the connection string, before it goes back to the application. So. Where does uh, the T4 technology fit into the uh, code generation equation? Well, that's very cool stuff because that really goes back to uh, uh, that complexity issue that uh, Carl was raising earlier. And, and that is if you were right, you could write code to write code. <laughs> and, and that code, because it's sort of metacode, I guess, sort of has, I guess, an inherent level of complexity. Well, when Microsoft was rolling out their domain-specific language uh, package, they rolled out this, this T4 templating. And if, if you used to use, in the bad old days, when you were working with ASP, you had an intermixture in your ASP file of your own code and ASP tags and stuff. Yeah, the well, write once, read never code. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what T4 does, but in, in a better way. It's still not perfect, but it's a better way. What you do in a T4 template is you have a combination of code that you want to be dropped into your generated code file. And, you know, in, in most code generation solutions, 
a significant portion of the code, anywhere from like 50 to 80%, is the same from every generation. Going back to that example I have of generating a little uh, method for every rule that the user created. I mean, what do we change from one generation to another? Well, we change the operator and we change the name of the field that's being checked, but that's about it. Um, the rest of the code was, was boilerplate. So the template, you just type in the code that you want to end up in your code generation file, just like you would in an XSLT template, where, you know, code that's not an XSLT tag just ends up in your output file. And then you can surround that with whatever and only code that you need. So your code that generates code becomes a small part of the template file, and then the code that is the generated code that doesn't change from one template to another uh, just uh, it's just sitting there. It's easy for you to read, easy for you to modify, easy for you to change. And invoking a template is is relatively easy. It's a very simple method to uh, uh, three or four lines of code. You can load a template into memory. Actually, anybody listening to this can do a template right now. Open any project in uh, Visual Studio 2008, add a text file, give it the file type TT, Type anything you want into that template, into that text file, and close it. And you'll find that if you show all files, sitting under that TT file, you now have a C-sharp file with whatever you typed in your template sitting in that C-sharp file. It won't, of course, compile unless you typed in C-sharp code into that text file. And that, that's how easy it is to use the, uh, the T4. Uh, I think it sounds, sounds, stands for something like text templating toolkit. I've lost a T in there. But uh, that's text how templating transformation is. toolkit. That's the word I'd forgotten. Text templating transformation. Like your wife transformed from an American to a Canadian. Text templating transformation toolkit. <laughs> so you, any file with the TT extension will automatically invoke the T4 processor when it's saved. There's Visual Studio conspiring with .NET to generate code. And the resulting file is automatically tucked as a code behind file underneath in the Solution Explorer underneath your TT file. And anything you just typed in is just dropped into your generating file. Now you can go in and start adding your own code to uh, modify. So Because in most code generation solutions, you don't want the same code every time, right? So you're going to have to add some code that will play with it and alter it a bit. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors, so say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight, an incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart, yes, 3D in Silverlight is coming soon as well. The traditionally strong ASP.NET AJAX suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep, Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern AJAX applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com, and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks.
I do feel like T4 is sort of a, a sideshow. They've not really taken it seriously. There's not much in the way of samples. Like Microsoft put it in there, and then it's almost like they didn't want to talk about it, so they hid it. Well, I, and I think that's I think the emphasis, I mean, it was something they did as part of rolling out uh, the domain-specific language package, and uh, I think it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves um, because all the emphasis was on all this other stuff to make DSL work. And so T4, which is this fabulous entry point for doing code generation because it's so easy to get started. And and the nice thing about that old ASP model of, you know, <laughs> write once, read, never code, was that it was easy to uh, start typing in and start uh, and start playing with it. It, it, it. Behind the scenes, it's actually a very complicated process because what happens is it looks at your T4 template, generates a <laughs> a program, and then that program generates your code. Fortunately, you don't have to be aware of any of that. <laughs> uh, it's a much simpler process if you're just uh, if you're just looking at it. But actually, it generates a program to write your program. So we're we're not even writing code to write code. We're writing code to write code to write code. Uh, um, but it works, and it works very reliably and very quickly. Well, what about dynamically data driven subroutines or classes? In other words, instead of using an external program to write code. Why not write code that's data driven? And I, and and you know what? If if you don't know the parameters at design time, if you've got to pick up the parameters, the input parameters at runtime, then that is exactly the right way to go. You have no choice. You've got to do that because you don't want to be generating code at runtime. One thing is very difficult to read and debug, but. If you know all the stuff at design time, like these rules that you're entering, the user's entering them into a database, so as soon as they're into the database, we know what they are. The rules won't be executed until sometime later uh, when the actual uh, data starts flowing through the system. So we can generate code. But the problem with general purpose code, and, and that's the term I use to describe those things, which, you know, re- data-driven code, is, the problem with general purpose code is that it's, one, necessarily inefficient. It's got to read the data out of the table. Two, as soon as you get any sort of complex problem at all, you find yourself doing all sorts of typecasts. Um, yeah, and branching and forking. Branching. Yeah. I mean, you look at most of the design patterns that people adopt, and most of those design patterns are designed to remove branching. They're designed to replace branching with just use the right object. And uh, select case statements and stuff like that rule thing I said. We would have had a select case, added a select case statement to say, you know, what each... Uh, or alternatively, you're going to have to invo- invoke a runtime interpreter, um, uh, and that's got its own performance problems and complexity problems related to it. And we don't, we generally speaking, uh, um, if you're building high-performance applications, you, you don't want to do it. And furthermore, I think when you do so general-purpose code, testing that code because of all the branching becomes yeah. tremendously onerous. It's true. Well, on the other hand, the generated code is typically very simple. Right, so you build a system that generates the code you want instead of having to execute fifty lines of general purpose code. What you would do is you basically call the one line of fully compiled code that's sitting there waiting for you. Here's another um, thing: um, trying to put uh, logic in an external file, like an XML file, uh, you know, that you can declaratively. Um, uh, that you can declare. Basically, use a declarative model for business logic, and then your generated code reads that logic in, you know, in as directives. Yeah. And and it, there is, I mean, and I think what you're suggesting there is there's a hybrid approach. I mean, if, if right. you're going the 
all a data-driven thing, it would read in an XML file and parse it out and have all those case statements and those typecasts because everything in XML file string that we were talking about. Yeah. If you go fully the code-generated solution, right, you put, the, uh, you put your code in an XML file, you, put, you, know, you describe, essentially what you're doing is you're providing the specifications for the resulting program. Right. So you, you come up with some XML syntax that lets you do that, and you put that code in an XML file, and then the fully generated solution would look at that and generate the code for you. Right. But what if some of the parameters, some of the inputs, aren't known till, uh, uh, till runtime? Or you want to be able to customize. Yeah, you want to be able to customize without regenerating. I mean, that's, that's usually what, what bites you, right? Because the business logic is always the stuff that has to be handcrafted because it's always so particular and, you know, different from one thing to the next. So um, it's nice to be able to put that stuff in a place where it can automatically be read in and, and, and implemented without having to, okay, now that I've generated my code, you know, fork off this, these classes that sort of get injected or inserted, you know, in, into my, uh, into my generated code. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. If it's part of a, of a big application, then what's going to happen? You say, oh, uh, all right, we want to change the way this works. So you go in and change the code generation solution or change the, uh, the specifications in your input file. Now it's generated the code. Well, now we're into version control, and we're into getting waiting for another release to get this out of there. Why don't I just generate, why don't I just drop this XML file on my in the appropriate folder, and it'll be read and control processing uh, when my general purpose program starts up. But you know, with, with reflection, especially with MEF now, um, you could generate, you know, a new DLL and then drop that DLL onto your new, onto, into the appropriate folder as easily as you could drop that XML document and get all the performance benefits and all the cleanliness benefits and all the, oh, we don't have to keep reading this file into memory. I mean, the slowest thing you can do in the world is read something off your hard disk, but DLLs are more likely to be cached than, uh, XML files are. So, you know, if 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 the concern is, oh my gosh, I have to re-release the whole application, then don't regenerate that DLL and drop that DLL in. Maybe do some MEF coding to see what DLLs are lying around and waiting for you to load. Right. I'm always concerned with any of these technologies that as soon as you get past sort of the demo case, the sample case, the complexity makes it unmanageable. That it just sort of gets away from. And, and you know, I think that's I think that's again terrifically valid concern. And and we are fact when you're writing code to write code, you're, in fact, you know, creating meta-code. The code that generates your code is, is, uh, is meta-code. And uh, I think the tools that Microsoft was providing uh, before and the tools that I've, I've got in my book are all very, very good. But if you don't, think about it in advance. If you don't architect it, you're going to end up with something that, if you're doing anything interesting, is unmaintainable, unmodifiable, unadaptable, and unextendable. That's what drove... Uh, Kathleen to using XSLT templates because they are uh, more modifiable, more extensible than uh, than uh, pure code generated, pure code generating code solution, template generating code. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about T4 is that it does go to a template pattern where right off the bat, any code that is boilerplate from one implementation to another is just sitting there in a text file. You can just see it and look at it. Heck, you can copy and paste it into into a class file and copy and paste into a class file and make sure it even compiles. And you only have to write code for the typically small percentage of your solution 
that does vary from one code generation to another code generation. You only have to write the code that fondles the lines that actually change. The boilerplate code just sits there. It's, an, it's a very clean situation. I've done a couple of code generation solutions where uh, literally we just copied in text files and assembled the text files in the appropriate order and, uh, uh, and then modified two or three lines. We had, you know, parameters in there, used the string dot format and replaceable parameters, and that was how we generated code. So if we needed to change the solution, we didn't really have to change our code. We just changed these text files that had all the components that were being assembled. So if you do think about it and say, okay, what does change and put the complexity, what does change from one code generation to another and put the complexity there and saying, okay, this stuff doesn't ever change from one solution to another, then put that in a database or in a text file or something. And, and uh, that, can, that all by itself can dramatically reduce the complexity in the solution. So you, you do have to think about it. You can't, it, you know, somebody once told me about threading applications. You can't evolve a threading application. And I don't think you can evolve a code generation. You mean a, multi, a multi-threaded application? Yeah, well, yeah, multi-thread. You can't evolve that. You've got to think about it in advance and make sure you're doing the right thing. Well, and you get back to that whole, it's write once code. It's easier for you to redo the template than it is to try and fix the template. Exactly right. And, 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 Hopefully, there's only small parts of it that you have to uh, uh, that you'd have to redo. But ideally, you know, good program design doesn't go away. If you apply the same principles to good program, good program design, good architecture to your code generation solution, you don't have to end up with uh, with write with read only code. You know, you can in fact get up get code that is perfectly maintainable and extensible. That going back uh, to the earlier point that the uh, that is data driven that the data in this case are is the uh the boilerplate code that sits in a text file or sits in a database very easy to to look that stuff up and change it and extend it so it sounds like you're saying that there isn't any one way to do this right i mean a lot of it depends on your project and on your data and on you know the the tools that you plan to use together the, the what we've talked about is just a myriad of options to but i, I imagine that there's you know the audience is thinking, hmm. You know which one, which tools should I use? Which, you know, is there any th- way that I can get started? You know, what, give me some good advice to get started. You know, when should I use what tools? You are the you are my bestest friend in the whole world because that was the reason I wrote the Practical Code Generation and .NET book because there are uh, an enormous number of tools. There's uh, the Code DOM, which most developers don't need because they they don't need to generate language neutral code their shop uses c sharp but that's the one they heard about so they figure you're stuck with it there's the file code model which will generate an enormous amount of code for you and is to a certain extent language neutral um, you want to build it into visual studio so that code is automatically generated you don't want to have to you know start up some other application or constantly be shelling out of visual studio so you want to be able to create visual studio uh, add-ins that will do this for you so the and, and that documentation seems to be sort of spread evenly over the whole internet. It's not gathered into one place. Richard's comment about the uh, uh, about T4 not getting any attention is another great. There's not many examples, and there's not much there. So what I wanted to do was in the book was basically devote a chapter to each one of the tools, not the whole tool, but just the part that was relevant to code generation, and then provide two case studies to show how this stuff would work together. Now. Unfortunately, because of the publishing thing, the uh, book came out before um, T4 
before, and I also want a book that would apply to Visual Studio 2003 right through to 2010 when it comes out. Um, so I left out two things. I left out T4 and I left out um, VS Packages because they're really uh, only available in Visual Studio 2008, mm-hmm. um, though they're going to be you know, baked into 2010. Um, so I'm going I'm to be self-publishing an expansion pack uh, uh, that covers T4 and, uh, and then the uh, and VS Packages. But if you wanted to have a one-volume reference to all the stuff that you needed to know in order to do practical things, you know, actually solving problems developers have in, um, in Visual Studio 2003 to 2008, get that book. If you don't want to buy the book, you know, and how many of us buy books anymore, right? Whenever we want anything, we just go on the Internet and search on it. You want to look at the file code model. File code model is a very easy object model to use. It's, it's language independent, by and large. And it will allow you to add files to your uh, uh, solution in Visual Studio. It will allow you to generate class modules, most control structures, uh, if-then, uh, properties, methods. And then after that, it's just, you know, string insertion to say, you know, all right, I want this line of code uh, written there. Another great tool, a little bit awkward to set up, are um, code tools. If, uh, if you've ever created a data set, if you go and look at the data set in Solution Explorer and look at its properties window, it has a property called code tool. And that code tool is a little DOS program that every time you save your data sets designer, it looks at the XML file that's uh, in, generated when you're working with the designer and looks at that XML file and writes out all your data set code for you. And I did an article for Visual Studio magazine. Am I allowed to plug them? Sure. All right, there you go. I did an article for Visual Studio Magazine on how to uh, create your very own custom uh, code tool. Uh, and again, the information for how to do that was all on the net. It was just spread out evenly over the whole net. And I'd love to claim I did original research, but mostly I just dragged it all together into one place. Because my goal was that if you're creating a code tool, you go in, you configure your Visual Studio uh, project, and then every time you want to regenerate your code tool, you just like the build menu. You shouldn't have to shell out of anything. You shouldn't have to um, manually install into the GAC or anything like that. And, and, and now you can just create an XML file, put the name of your code tool, and it will write out the code for you. So you, you mentioned get that book. You were talking about your book, Practical Code I'm Generation. About my book. Um, so that's not on Amazon yet, is it? No, no. Um, the, uh, it, uh, Addison Wesley should have it out in about a month or so. Oh, so. okay. I was going to ask for a link to it, but... Um but I couldn't find it. Oh, I'm, and, and I can't tell you how sorry I am about that. Oh, well, but we'll keep looking for it. You don't make money it. from books, but I am sorry you can't get a link to it, but I'll send it to you when it comes out. Okay, and, you know, if you just search for practical code generation in .NET in a month or so. It'll be there. It'll be there. But make it a Google watchword. Yeah, and the whole, yeah, practical is the thing. I mean, the two code solutions, the two case studies I use, one is that connection string manager, which is something I think everybody needs. And then the other one was, uh, I'm an ASP.NET guy, so it was an ASP.NET solution. I wanted uh, a lookup validator that um, I could say, all right, check this value against this field, against this table in this database, and, the, uh, and it would write out the code So to do that. look Because that, that's a big hole in validation. There's no validator that will check a value against a field in a table and database. So I created 
That's the other case study. You drag, you drag the lookup, and a great example of integrating a Visual Studio, the lookup validator control appears in your toolbox with all the other validators if you wanted to. You drag it onto an ASP.NET page, and boom, it generates all the code necessary to implement the, uh, the lookup for you. You just have to tell it the name of the table, name of the field, and the name of the connection string to use. Oh, and the data type. So, um, so those are the two case studies I use. The expansion pack, again, I'll, I'll go through the tools, but then I'll also make sure I put in a couple of case studies that say, here's something you'd want to do. I think I'll probably use the rule generator for the expansion pack. So, but yeah, look, practical code generation, you'll find the book. Uh, okay. Have you been looking at uh, Framework 4.0 and, and Studio 2010? Are, are we seeing some evolution in this area? Not that I've seen. I think T4 was the real, uh, was the real add-on, and that came out with the domain-specific languages. I mean, generally speaking, in the, one of the things that you have to look at, I think, when you're working with code generation, is you want it to happen automatically. You want it to happen in the background. So you've got to build it, into, uh, build it as a Visual Studio add-in and tie it to events in the Visual Studio model so that when you close the web.config file or switch away from it or when you build your application, your code is generated for you. You don't have to click any extra buttons or anything. Um, and the Visual Studio object model is constantly evolving. With 2010, with them um, uh, taking advantage of some of the foundation classes in uh, Visual Studio 2010, we're seeing some changes there. But in terms of the kinds of things used for code generation, uh, I haven't seen anything yet that I went, whoo, like that. Um, I mentioned the file code model earlier on. The file code model allows you to analyze existing classes. Like it, it, it turns your source code into a set of objects. You can find all the classes in a file or find all the methods in a file at design time, unlike reflection, which works at runtime. It will also, and this is what I use it for, is generating code. But it doesn't always generate code. The file code model, not all of it is implemented for every language. If, if you want to generate a method or a property in C-sharp, that will always work. But if you're trying to generate in a, for a Visual Basic file, occasionally you'll get back the message and say, that's not supported. So I'm assuming in 2010, if I'm running tests, I'm assuming in 2010 we'll see more of the file code model implemented for Visual Basic. So I think we're seeing extensions, but I don't think we're anything, I think the really new thing is uh, that T4, which came out with the main specific languages a year or two ago, I guess now. So, so that's okay. a nice thing. It means everything in this book also applies in Visual Studio 2010. I don't have to do a massive rewrite. I hate rewrites. Right. <laughs> well, we're coming uh, down to the wire here. Is there anything that we missed that you want to talk about? No. The big message I want to get out is that Everything that, that the typical develop well, first off, the big mess you want to go to is if you ever find yourself writing the same code over and over again, stop doing it. You should be using code generation. Take half an hour or three hours or a day if you're building something really complicated out of your life and let Visual Studio and .NET generate your code for you. It's all there. You're using exactly the same stuff that the guys at Microsoft are using to generate the entity framework and all their good stuff. It's there waiting for you to use it. it. It's a big, important, useful tool, and people aren't using it enough. Hmm. So that's, that's the big man. And, and the reason I wrote the book was so if you didn't know where to find all the stuff, here's, you can buy this. If you like buying books, <laughs> you can buy this book, and, and my kids will get new shoes. So. <laughs> nice. Excellent, Peter. Thanks very much. 
My pleasure. Thank you, guys. I re- I, this is a real thrill for me to be on the show. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a dog.